Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our guest today is Amy Young, VP and Deputy General Counsel at Sally May, and a well-known legal tech thought leader. As a paralegal starting her career at Williams and Connolly, Amy learned the ins and outs of the profession and found inspiration in the lawyers she assisted. She went to law school and then after working in the securities group of Wilmer Hale, she changed course and joined the gaming company, Cinemax Media, as assistant general counsel. Amy would continue to serve various legal tech functions for the next several years before joining the financial services company, Sally May. Additionally, Amy is chair of the Law Department Management Network, the largest network of the Association of Corporate Counsel, and she's a public speaker on topics such as data privacy, cultural change, and leadership. She's also been a mentor to many in the legal industry, has received numerous accolades and honors, having recently been included in Corporate Counsel Business Journal's inaugural 50 Women to Watch. Today, Amy discusses her decision to take an in-house role at a gaming company, the considerations that have guided her throughout her career, and the need for informed dialogue as technology continues to advance. It was a delightful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Amy, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to talk to you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for making the time. And let me let me start by congratulating you on being one of the 50 women to watch, the inaugural group of 50 women to watch in the CCPJ, Corporate Council Business Journal edition. You're with some fabulous people, so congratulations. Thank you so much. It's quite the honor, and if anything, reflective of some of the passion that I bring in and motivating for me to continue to do the work that I do professionally on and off, you know, sort of the clock, so to speak. So thank you. You're welcome. We don't have time to go through all the other recognitions and honors you received, but it's, it's, it's incredibly impressive and it's well-earned. Let's talk a little bit about your professional career. You don't come from a family of lawyers. So talk a little bit about that and sort of what got you headed down the lawyer path. That's right. Both of my parents are immigrants to this country and come from cultures where lawyers are not the go-to profession. Rather, you know, becoming a doctor, helping people in that vein is an example of where, culturally speaking, a lot of individuals and specifically where a lot of parents <laughs> will <laughs> direct their children. Maybe that's not specific to a culture, but, but it certainly is in part with my family. And so I say that because I didn't grow up knowing any lawyers. I didn't know what lawyers did. I didn't know what they do. I had the sense that lawyers actually were something I didn't want to become because they handled things in the open and it was very public and it was a public way of doing business in a way that settling disputes ought to be done behind closed doors and shaking hands. Business people should be able to resolve what they need to resolve and it doesn't require facilitation. Or at least that's the impression that I got as I was a child. And so when I went to college and like many others who have become lawyers, decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I had a professor who asked me, what do you want to do? You know, where do you want to go? What are you thinking of in terms of next steps? And I said, I want to be a lawyer. I'm studying and I'm going to go take the LSAT. And he said, 
that's great. What do you want to do? What kind of lawyer do you want to be? And I actually said, I, I don't actually know what lawyers do. And he thoughtfully had suggested that I take some time to be a paralegal. And so I did. I spent two years and then three in a paralegal program that Williams and Connolly had at that time. It was phenomenal. You sort of went in at the top of the profession, didn't you? Uh, well, I, I don't know that I knew that at the time, but um, I think it just goes to show how we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And I can't imagine that I picked Williams and Connolly out of a random hat. I'm, I'm certain <laughs> that he, made, <laughs> he had made some recommendations for me, given the fact that I wanted to return to Washington, D.C. And it was before e-discovery came about. And so part of a paralegal's role was to literally look through page after page of documents and through an Excel spreadsheet, document roughly what the bait stamps numbers were after you, you know, wore your fingers down to nubs by labeling everything um, with stickers and then getting a sense. There are a few of us these days that remember, remember Bates numbering. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank goodness for that too. Oh, <laughs> uh, and, and it was, it was a phenomenal experience because unbeknownst to me, just that sheer work of going through every single document in a case, which again, mind you, fewer documents, there weren't emails and the like, you kind of got a real sense of what was going on in odd ways or unforeseeable ways. And the associates who worked with you, their very first question would say, hey, pull me all these documents related to John Doe or pull documents that relate to this particular topic. And not only were you part of the team, which is frankly how I think uh, Williams and Connolly you know, treats the family, so to speak, but also you were already a part of the analysis of the case, whether or not you recognize that. What you pulled and how you pulled it, the way in which you presented it to the associates were all kind of the fundamental underpinnings of what we all know as being a lawyer. And it was phenomenal, including um, some great experiences working with Brendan Sullivan. I had an opportunity to work with him on the Microsoft case. So it was a major antitrust case and it was phenomenal. Not only did the group include uh, just dozens of lawyers, the team was huge and the documents were huge. The names were, of course, amazing and especially amazing to a paralegal being able to see Bill Gates in person, you know, at that point in time was unquestionably in and of itself, a motivating factor to do your best and present your best. That's very cool. But what I also noticed was the way in which Brendan and many other attorneys working together on a case ended up being their own authentic self as a top performing lawyer. We all sat down every night for family dinner. That was where Brendan talked to the team about housekeeping, major thoughts, major themes, upcoming deadlines, things that we all working together had to know. And with that, there were a number of other attorneys who had a chance to talk within our tables and then see when we were in court and to see the various ways in which individuals advocated and especially the way in which Brendan advocates was completely opposite of what I thought a lawyer actually was. I thought a lawyer had to have a certain personality, had to be loud, had to be tall and have an incredible physical presence had to be demanding in an overt way. And Brendan is anything but, and yet is surely 
one of the most persuasive individuals that are in our profession. He's a brilliant lawyer, isn't he? He's just incredible. And to see him, even at a stage where I didn't even appreciate or fully appreciate the legal arguments that were being made, was a pivotal time in my career. It solidified that I wanted to be a lawyer, that I wanted to be an advocate, and that I didn't have to fit some preconceived model or notion of of that because it comes in a variety of different shapes and sizes. That's an awesome experience. And it led you to law school. It did indeed. And led you to start practice at Wilmer Hale. Since Wilmer Hale, you've you've had a number of positions in-house that you you start with Zenimax, which is a, a gaming company. Talk us through that progression because it seems to me a very deliberate thought process with regard to your career. It's not like you just accidentally bumped into one one company after another. Sort of walk us through that thought process and, and how that's transpired for you. The decision to move to Zenimax was probably one of the most difficult ones I've had to make in my career. I was leaving the law firm at a very early stage at a time where essentially you couldn't move from firm to firm with great regularity as you do now. The notion was you were up and out. You could still make partner at some firms at seven or eight years. Uh, And leaving early was a big risk. Perceived or real, that's certainly how I felt like it was. And moving to Zenimax was a big decision too, because what I was being asked to do had very little to do with where my professional background was. I had joined the securities group at Wilmer, wanted to tour all sorts of things that related to public companies, litigation, enforcement, regulatory, product development, and general corporate work. And and having the opportunity to join as the fourth attorney in a, in a private equity-backed technology company was innovative. It was disruptive. I felt like there was enough subject matter expertise and leadership that I could still learn, but it also focused on subjects like intellectual property, technology, corporate work that I hadn't yet spent an extensive amount of time in from the law firm. And so in that regard was a very significant risk. You you just don't want to build a reputation or I don't want to build a reputation where I can't perform at the highest level that I want to. And so moving into a role where I had very little I thought professionally to offer was my risk. And A, that is a way to look at that picture. And B, that's not the full picture. <laughs> so, so I'll talk about that probably later in our conversation today. But knowing that, what I did bring in and what I think the company found very persuasive and where I thought Actually, it actually was quite an impact in the way in which I could deliver my guidance and counsel to our internal clients was that I gamed all the time in my (laughs) personal life as a child. I knew the technology. I knew the hardware. I knew how games were made and how people played them because I did that. And as it turns out, that actually had maybe even more impact in how I transformed as an in-house counsel. Sure, there was a lot of new subject matter expertise that I had to learn. Truth be told, you can figure that out in a lot of different books that our profession ends up putting out. And so that was actually the easiest part of the transition. What I think I uh, 
mentor a lot of people on is the difficulty in moving from a law firm or other places into in-house counsel or in-house counsel to other forms like the government. Knowing your clients and how to deliver your message in an effective way for your audience, that I think is really tough. And I just happen to have enough background for me that I brought in from a personal way that really helped me understand what the clients were trying to get at, what problem they're trying to solve, and being able to deliver synthesized legal analysis in a way that they could actually apply because I knew that was the way they needed to do it in the video game itself. And then, of course, as the publisher, as we all know, we can consume, you know, the entertainment and the commercials and all of that. And so that, too, was a place that as I helped them expand into a global publisher, worked on uh, incredible trade shows, all of those little things about knowing how events are done, knowing how people like to receive their splashes and their commercials and what hits and what doesn't hit isn't my job in a company, but it is absolutely useful and insightful in how I can deliver my message of where the TM mark is and how big it is on the sleeve of a t-shirt or all of that little fine print that everybody except for geeks like me pay attention to in, in those commercials. Yeah, but it had to build your credibility with your in-house clients that you understood apart from being a consumer of the, of the services they're offering. You understood their business and, and that's transferable across companies and across businesses, I think. Whether you're an outside counsel or in-house, understanding what your clients are doing and the problems you're going to solve is absolutely critical. Absolutely. And I will say and add, that's probably why I think that my career accelerated in ZeniMax because the folks that I worked with could see that the way in which I was trying to help them was really trying to not only help them with the problem they're trying to solve in a collaborative fashion, but also where I could peer around the corner. What comes next? Where are we going with this? What are we trying to achieve? Not just on a game to game level, but really as a company, as an organization, how each of these building blocks ended up fitting in an overall strategic goal for the company that I think very much goes to your point, Steve, in what makes for a valued counsel and where understanding the strategic footprint of the company is important. And that scaling is subsequently how a number of my, my subsequent experiences, professional experiences have really been valued. Being able to know where the business wants to go next because you're able to pick up on some of those little signals. And sometimes the signals continue to get fainter and fainter. But with your experience, you can sort of pick them out, out of the crowd and, and see them as the most meaningful ones to understand. That's the direction that the business wants to go. And if they want to go that direction, this is how I can modify, change, massage the way in which the legal counsel is presented to them so that they can effectively apply it and they can also see where I'm trying to, to steer them in their trajectory. And it really makes for a great partnership. You're currently with Sally May with a couple of uh, stops between Zenimax and Sally May. What's your sort of guiding philosophy as you're thinking about that career progression? As you talk to mentor young people coming up, I think people draw on their own experiences and their own careers to provide mentoring advice. Whether it's the advice you give them or how you've thought about your career, sort of what are the guiding 
principles you, you've, you've gone by as you've thought deliberately about whether to change jobs or how to progress within a particular job? One person that I had sought counsel for when making my ZeniMax decision had suggested to me, make sure this is the industry that you want to be in. And you can slice and dice the industry any number of ways. You could call it entertainment law for me for ZeniMax. You could call it technology, which is how I think of it. You could think these days, big data, data analytics, software is another way to cut it. But make sure that's the industry you want to be in because it's really hard to move as a lawyer from industry to industry. I have found that to be the case, not necessarily in my career, but generally speaking, it seems to be true that understanding the regulatory framework that is applied to an organization, uh, whether or not it's public, whether or not it's private, the industry comings and goings, and also understanding the industry generally are those markers of being able to provide advice. And certainly for interviewing, especially for individuals that I mentor, you know, those are sort of hallmark representations of what type of experiences you bring. And so they're secondary signals that somebody interviewing them, considering them for a job would then look to, to then sort of benchmark the types of experiences that an individual has and therefore would, would therefore be able to bring to, bring to a company. So that is still to date a point and a North Star that I share with individuals. Another one that I share is, are you going to learn? And how much are you going to learn? A lot of people say, are you going to learn? And I think you can find learning opportunities anywhere and everywhere you go. It's the how much are you going to learn that I think is a really meaningful and a very honest reflection for the risk appetite that somebody has in their career. I think that for me, ZeniMax was a pretty significant 180 or however <laughs> however much you want to measure that. It was a radical shift for me and it also gave me an understanding of my risk appetite professionally and also the challenges I really wanted to undertake, not just for myself, but also with a company. For some people, that's not the answer. They believe that they want to take a lot of risk, but at the end of the day, their risk appetite is not as significant. They would like to learn, but the way in which they want to learn is different. All of these things are great self-identifiers before you are looking for that next role. And then when you are evaluating a specific role, whether or not that role ends up fitting. And so when you're in the heart of interviews themselves, you're already caught up in the moment and you may already know before you even get to that stage, whether or not this is the, the right type of role for you, including whether or not you should be actively looking for a different set of roles. So how much, how much you're going to learn and, and whether or not that's of interest to you to then understand your risk appetite is also one of those North Stars that I think I have in most, if not all of my conversations. Right. That's awesome. One of the things that you must have been part of your learning, given the companies you work with, is technology and how it's, I mean, you work with a lot of AI companies. So you knew ChatGPT was coming and you didn't tell us. So, you know, <laughs> we're still going to touch on that a little bit later. I'm coming back to that. Touche, touche. Um, but talk a little bit about how you learn from the technology side of the business and apply that to the practice, the delivery legal services, whether 
internally on the teams you led or with your outside vendors? I love technology. I have always believed and still believe that technology is this singular, most disruptive topic, subject, whatever you want to call it in our lives. And it is also the one place that I believe is a true leveler of experiences and opportunities. Doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what you look like, all of these things, technology is blind to that. And even having been in technology for, you know, for as long as I have today, philosophically, I still believe that. So it means a great deal to me for the power that it can hold and to be able to advance it for me also means that we can, as a society, move forward in many different ways. With that said, there is a lot of disruption in the area for which I too love and embrace. For me to be able to work on so many change agents in our lifetime, for example, data miner, taking in every single public tweet in the world in real time to have that much social data at the fingertips was revolutionary. One that the World Economic Forum recognized as a global disruptor for the benefit of public policy. And, it's an amazing um, business, isn't it? It's, it's phenomenal. And its impact is also phenomenal and equally complex in our society. So, you know, to think about how this can reshape the way in which we as communities react to things. So people tweeting now and uh, videoing that there's a fire on 32nd and 5th. On average, the 911 calls disparity and somebody's tweet is or was close to an hour, you know, it was 45 minutes. And so that's a big deal when it comes to a fire and getting people out and having the opportunity to just send a police cruiser over to take a look or to even validate whether or not something is real. It also creates a lot of interesting complexity in our society when being able to send out those signals can also equally be evaluated for, for example, peaceful demonstrations, which is something that I had to work through with the company when I was there, when Black Lives Matter, as it turns out, was there were a lot of tweets coming around to then say, hey, we're going to have a peaceful demonstration here. And as a consequence, had other community organizations then say, okay, well, then we'll make sure our presence is there too. When we know that there is likely to be danger, you know, this is exactly what those signals are there to create, but who starts the danger and how it manifests and, and what our motivations are for using that are the data ethics that really surround what I think are and what need to be some foundational ground rules for big data, data analysis today. And that we haven't quite needed to work through because we, we didn't quite even know the societal use cases yet of what AI can do and what um, big data and the analytics from it does. So the same response happens when you see a tweet that says somebody, I heard a shot, and then you have police organizations come and they adjust the strategy for how they want to approach the square to recognize multiple suicide bombers in a square to help save lives is phenomenal. It's also the same analysis, but a different outcome in different ways. 
So it's not the technology so much as it is outcome determinative. And, and we as a society haven't yet started to go through that process. How do you think society goes through that? I mean, we're not particularly functional, at least in my view, as, as a society these days. And, and yet the impact of technology, AI, generative AI, whatever you want, is moving so quickly and raises all kinds of issues in terms of education, and training, and job availability, and retraining. The list goes on and on. How do you, and I guess this is just sort of an unanswerable question, So, but I'll ask it anyway. How do you see this working its way through the system as a general? I'm not now not talking about lawyers necessarily, but just society as a general proposition. How do you work through these issues? They're fundamental to who we are and how we act as a society in a atmosphere that we're in now. I'll bite. <laughs> I'll bite. The first thing I would say is that we need to have discussions and transparent discussions about this. I don't think we move anywhere and contrary to the way I learned how lawyers should be when, you know, when I grew up, I actually think that the right answer here is to have many discussions and lots of dialogue and candid and transparent dialogue, because I don't know that anybody has the answer. And surely the answer is more sophisticated than a singular outcome. It is going to be multiple different efforts all across the board, across legislation, public policy, um, within our business community, with the way in which human beings interact. And nobody knows any of those answers, but we can start by having the conversation. I personally think that the conversation at a community level really starts with corporations. I say that because, in my view, it's business that is really challenging and innovating on all of the interesting, unique, and novel ways of how we can use technology. It's innate in their DNA to come up with new ways of harnessing this information and then deploying it in a way that is consumable, consumable to other businesses and consumable to people. And they are always going to be at the cutting edge of what this means and how technology impacts us. And in that vein, SROs, self-regulatory organizations, just group dialogue, whether or not it's in consortium form or in other formal or informal forums, to then begin to set common standards, at least and or expectations is, in my opinion, sort of the next step of where we need to go. I think government will always be behind. It's not because it's because of them per se. It's just because it's not the nature of government to then be quite as innovative and disruptive. They don't have an audience and um, you know capitalistic forces of making the dollars and cents behind them to know whether or not something's going to succeed or fail. And so it really is the business community that I, I think will be begin to, to do this and frankly already does. There are lots of organizations, including ones that I've been able to participate in that are really thinking hard about this. And it's also, in my opinion, aligned with business models. This isn't going out and suggesting that businesses are doing anything that they wouldn't otherwise do, which is to understand the market in as best of a way they can to then be able to adjust where they're going. So I would probably posit those two things as maybe a way in which we as a, as a group, if we could consider ourselves as a group, could move forward in sort of thinking through and defining these use case scenarios. 
let's pull on the discussion thread just a little bit and apply it to the legal community. Do you see legal departments, in-house legal departments, leading these conversations? I know you've been a leader of the conversations, whether through the ACC or through the other memberships, but what format do they take and what kind of discussions are you seeing occurring with the context of the role of technology? I do think that there's a very hearty place for lawyers, in-house counsel, those with a legal degree in other areas to have a meaningful impact here. And I don't mean necessarily leading, meaning being the person who is the torchbearer. I also mean leading from behind, meaning helping encourage the dialogue, keeping it transparent, keeping it real and actionable. These are all things that we as lawyers are trained to do and therefore can be helpful guides along the way to then build out and make sure that the most salient points are being surfaced and that we're prioritizing those in an actionable way forward. One of the things across the organizations that I've been in that I think lawyers are particularly artful in is ensuring that we are all on the same page understanding what the problem is. We're really good translators in that regard or or where I've seen a lot of very talented individuals become the bridge of translation across different groups. Selfishly, I think in-house counsel especially are good at doing that because they're just day in, day out, always working through various different internal clients and sort of forced to wear many, many hats in a day. And that experience just builds upon itself. Fundamentally, technology too has all of those different facets by use of commercialization, by use of public outlook, by means of brand, et cetera. And I think lawyers can do our society, our businesses, our clients, a lot of help by counseling and embracing that change in the risk-based approach that that the container that we serve in, <laughs> <laughs> law firm, company, what, you know, whatever, warrants it. We are known as the individuals who raise risk and define it for our clients. And I think in technology, there is a big distinction that we as lawyers need to make, which is understanding the risk present in a situation versus the overall risk, the objective risk of what's going on. In technology, I find that this is often conflated. Whether or not ChatGPT or generative AI or or whatever ends up coming up, most attorneys that I know, probably almost all of them would certainly acknowledge and appreciate that it's here to stay. There are probably some who are like, look, my container, my company, there's no place for it here. That's totally cool. But I would say most most folks already understand and or agree that it's here. So let's find a way to define the use cases early on where there's a risk-based approach where we can try it out. And that to me is embracing change as well as distinguishing for our clients the difference between the risk for the company and overall risk. That's well said. Well said. I know we've run over our time, but if you would indulge me one more question, sort of not on the technology, I want to come back to the points we're talking about earlier in terms of your role as a mentor and counselor for others. That must be an enormous personal satisfaction for you to be able to contribute to the successful careers, not that people aren't doing it on their own merit and getting accomplishments, but to be able to be a 
a contributing factor for that. Yeah, absolutely. It is with great satisfaction that being able to have the opportunity to help individuals along their career path, whatever that looks like, it's a great pressure and it's a great privilege. When you were going into law school, did you think you'd be the role model you are? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I didn't know then how difficult it would be, how complex it would be, and also how satisfying it would be, including, frankly, its impact in my own personal professional growth. I certainly shortchanged how learning from other people's experiences or hearing their hardships actually helps me better appreciate what others are going through and standing in their shoes and the way in which they perceive challenges in their career. Absolutely. Amy, it's been wonderful talking to you. We're going to have to have you back on because I've got a whole, I've got a whole list of Amy topics we didn't even, <laughs> we didn't even get to in the time allotted. Uh, but thank you for making the time. I, I, I really appreciate it. I am so grateful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.